Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series we'll look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why these ideas still matter, and what happens next. The events of 2016 have caused many people to ask if democracy is, in fact, the best form of government, or if Winston Churchill said, the worst, except for all those other forms that have been tried. In this episode, we look at how the idea of democracy in ancient Athens gave us the governments we have today, and consider today's challenges to the rule of the people. I'm joined by a panel of experts from the university, and I've asked them to tell me their favourite icon of democracy. I'm Kate Hunter and I teach history at Victoria. My favourite icon of democracy is the ballot box because I'm reminded every time I put something in it of just what it cost for me to get there. I'm Nigel Roberts and I used to teach uh, political science at Victoria University. My main fields of expertise are voting and voting systems. My icon of democracy is the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln delivered in 1863, uh, in which he gave that wonderful definition of democracy that I think is still highly relevant today. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I'm Art Pomeroy. Uh, I teach mainly ancient history in the classics department at Victoria. And my icon of the democracy is... A large, now almost empty space in Athens that you can visit today, which is on the hill of the Pnyx, where the Athenian assembly used to meet. And by looking at this, you can get an idea of how many people actually took part in government. You can have a look at the difficulties of actually working democracy when you don't have megaphones and have to shout from the speaker's platform. And you can get ideas of what people are interested in by looking at where the speaker's platform has been moved, whether it is to face inland uh, towards the uh, Athenian economy of the plains or whether it is to look out over the sea and consider the possibility of the Athenian Empire. That's such a romantic definition. Let's start with Athenian democracy. What, what, what did that look like? What was Athenian democracy? OK, Athenian democracy is basically um, the male Athenian citizens uh, over the age of 18. So really a development of the people who could fight for their country. And that's still sometimes regarded as a model for democracy. Um, America, for instance, has often thought of itself that way. Um, it's relatively small. Um, you've probably only got four to 5,000 people normally taking part in monthly meetings. But there is a group of people who are randomly selected to actually decide what is going to come up and be considered. How big was that group out of those 4,000? So you have um, a council of um, 500, but in fact what happens is that they take turns, uh, 50 people each month who will actually consider what should come up and then, theoretically, everyone has the chance to discuss the matter. In reality, uh, most people can't speak very well, can't speak loud enough, perhaps. And so 
there usually is a group of people who tend to dominate, as there tends to be in most political systems, full stop. Um, and those people may either try and win the support of the people by, in fact, saying that they are going to promise good things for them, or the other alternative, which tells you something about how people think about democracy, is you people out there are stupid, leave it to me. And that works very well as well. And that is essentially the two arguments about democracy, isn't it, Nigel? That that it's either, and I'm going to already reference Edmund Burke, I thought it would be a while before we got to him. <laughs> it's either, uh, I am I am your representative and I will do what you tell me, or um, or I owe you my wisdom and my, and my reason. Well, I, th- I think that's an extremely important statement by Edmund Burke in his famous uh, letter to the electors of Bristol. And I do think that that then really defines two different ways of running democratic institutions in which you can have people elected on the same basis, universal adult suffrage. Uh, But one model says that what we do is we have a representative and that representative decides for herself what the issues are and then as electors we get to judge that representative come an election. The other is the delegate model where the person goes to the parliament, goes to the assembly, goes to the town hall and does what she determines or thinks the electors want regardless of her own views. Mm. Um, And personally, I suppose it reflects my own bias having been brought up in the parliamentary world, I think that actually Edmund Burke spoke a great deal of sense. He was remarkably conservative in many ways, but I think as a model of clarity about what we should do, we should be prepared in... uh, Art has already referred to the fact that even with 500 people, you have a few people come to the fore, either voluntarily or because it's their turn... um, But um, it seems to me already you were getting the idea of representative democracy. A few people were having to make those basic decisions on behalf of them all. Mm. Um, I love uh, Art's introduction because my field, uh, the study of elections, is often called cephology. And the word cephos comes from the Greek word for a pebble. And the Greeks used to vote by putting pebbles in a bowl. And and then they counted the number of pebbles. Uh, and uh, as whether they went out to sea to the empire or in land, I presume. But um, and so I've always been so fond of you know reminding us of those classical Greek origins of the concept of bringing people together, giving all citizens an equal right, and then leading on to having some of them act in one way or another as representatives of the whole. What um, kinds of decisions were the Athenians making? Was it everything? Was it was it you know going to war and taxation, or was it? water rights and how to fund hospitals? Uh, They didn't look after uh, certainly hospitals. Uh, Social services are quite limited, um, but uh, other things, uh, war, uh, ensuring that there's a a steady food supply in particular, um, all of those things, um, in fact, have to be raised, uh, they may not be discussed, but does anyone want to actually talk about these things at meetings? Um, They can make any decision they like. And what is quite interesting and what's different from when you ask people nowadays to make a decision on Brexit or um, whether Scotland should leave the Union or so forth, is that once a decision has been made, questioning the decision nowadays is sometimes labelled as anti-democratic, but the Athenians were smart enough actually to say, no, actually, that's part of a good democratic process. Uh, There's a very famous case where um, an island uh, rebelled against Athens Uh, that's Mytilene on Lesbos, and after the Athenians had been forced to put down this rebellion, the view was that they should execute everyone, execute all the males, enslave the women and children, just the the normal sort of practice. And so they passed a motion for that. 
And then they went away at night and probably didn't sleep very well. <laughs> and they came back the next day. And that's actually one of the interesting examples that we've got of how they debated this with the side that wished to maintain the executions basically arguing that you can't bring things back all the time and the other side saying, well, actually, we can and we're smart enough and a, a good democracy should be able to revisit its own ideas. Do you think the Athenians would look at what we have now, say, in New Zealand, our parliamentary democracy in New Zealand, and recognise it as uh, the, the evolution of what they had? I suspect that they would be tempted, at least initially, to think that, no, this is some sort of strange government by the few. Um, which, in some ways, it is. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that uh, the idea that uh, Art raised about in, in ancient uh, Athenian democracy, it was a small democracy, it was a cosy democracy, and there are only a few parts of the democratic world that try and continue that con uh, tradition, the town meetings of New England or the cantonal meetings of Switzerland where you let all the uh, inhabitants of a particular town or of a canton or a half canton in Switzerland come to a meeting and it's their right to come and discuss issues. Uh, so and in fact, sometimes their responsibility. It's, it, it's not just indeed. a right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, and one of the things that always amuses me is that the largest state House of Representatives in, in the United States is in one of the smallest states in the United States. New Hampshire has a House of Representatives of 400, <laughs> far bigger than California's, Texas's, or anything. Um, and, and that's in an attempt to maintain that town tradition. So I, I think, yes, the Athenians say, my gosh, what's this? You know, where are the town meetings? Yes. We, you know, um, we don't have them in New Zealand. Actually, that's a very good question. Why don't we have them in New Zealand? Well, again, I think that there's a trade-off. I mean, uh, there are, of course, many people, and this is a very common theme, and if you live in Auckland, for example, you're well aware of it, the idea that you can't have nine different small city councils because actually one of the things that helps uh, citizens is having a certain size that is economically viable, you don't have repetition, and so that if you want to have a viable unit, you have to have a certain size. And this is a wonderful debate in the democratic literature, there's a great book called Size and Democracy by Dahl and Tufty that argues that. And after 200 pages, they come to the conclusion, well, actually, they can't see a clear victor mm. in either size with uh, a side saying size has it or smallness has it. Mm. Um, the small is beautiful. It's right up to a point. You know, large, viable institution, that's also right up to a point. So our, our parliament of 120, depending on MMP, um, is that the right number? Uh, New Zealand has a parliament that is uh, roughly the right number for uh, our size. I mean, there, there are formulas that kind of uh, work out, you know, not what the ideal size is, but you know, what happens. And, of course, the larger you are, uh, if you are Britain or you are the United States, you have a much bigger parliament, but in terms of ratio to number of uh, electors, a much uh, smaller parliament. I mean, the British Parliament is over 600 members, the, uh, the American House of Representatives with over 400 members. They have huge numbers of electors in their constituencies, whereas we only have about... Uh, 35, 40,000 voters in our constituencies, yeah. which, of course, in Britain or France or Italy, they think is just tiny. We should only have 50 of them or so. Did, yep. I, I'm thinking also uh, there's always the problem of whether, in fact, the, the elector feels that they are in any way in contact with whom they have elected. And we've seen that, obviously, in Britain and in the U.S., and in New Zealand, people often talk about Wellington, yeah. though Wellington is full of <laughs> Auckland politicians, just due to size. Yeah. But also in terms of, I mean, you know, the, the declining voting rate in New Zealand, part of that, and certainly the research that I've done over the last few years talking to young people about voting, is, is they don't feel a connection to the MP. They don't feel like the MP represents them. Uh, in political science, we've got a, a lovely word, 
uh, efficacy you know, and how effective, how efficacious do you feel? And, of course, uh, I think people are, and not only in New Zealand, of course, the decline in turnout is a democratic phenomenon. There are very few countries. Denmark is a country that actually goes against the grain, but it's about the only one. If you look at, say, the OECD or you know, modern democracies um, that uh, doesn't have declining turnout. Yeah. Kate, you look like so I'm saying. wondering about this, you know, talking about town meetings and why we don't have a tradition in, a, um, in New Zealand. And, I, you know, it's not a tradition of that in Australia either. And I'm wondering about the effect of um, government systems that were established um, right kind of in the early stages and then came to fruition with the flourishing of mass media. So, and, and then equally the decline of print media now, and I'm wondering about the role of letters to the editor, opinion pieces, those kinds of acts of democracy, so not a formal voting right necessarily, but the use of newspapers and magazines in the 19th century to pressure governments to um, make views known. And I'm wondering if there's a connection between those things that maybe town meetings weren't so necessary because we had mass media whereas if you think about the New England um, parliaments were set up you know in the 1700s without mass print media I I think there's no doubt that uh, in New Zealand for example uh, for the uh, most of the 20th century, signing petitions uh, was a very important aspect of the way p- people communicated with Parliament. Parliament used to have a standing com- uh, petitions committee and petitions would go and be considered by it. Nowadays, uh, it's kind of dropped off the horizon. Uh, but uh, I, I think that one of the problems also nowadays is... And one of the contributing factors towards the decline in turnout is that there are so many voices. Um, you know, we have heard talk with regard to the uh, US presidential election about uh, the post-truth era um, where you had news sites, uh, or fake news sites, false news sites, deliberately purveying uh, untruths. Uh, and uh, you, you've recently had Mark Zuckerberg say that Facebook's going to try and... Uh, uh, clamped down on it, which I find remarkably ironic, because every time I turn on Facebook, up pops a false advertisement. The latest one is Richard Branson has died, and you know, I mean, it's just nonsense. It's just mm. trying to—it's clickbait. But I think one of the things that happened is there are so many media voices that nobody's now um, you know, singing from the same song sheet, or very few people are. And I think that's led to a declining feeling of identity, of involvement in the society. Do you think, though, I mean, are we heading with all of these voices and all of, all of our ability to talk to each other uh, in kind of an Athenian way? Is, is Facebook the new town square? Could we make Facebook the new town square? Well, um, just to go back to the, the Athenians who really didn't have um, <laughs> papers or anything like that. Um, so what you do tend to have is, is indeed a lot of people talking to one another about what's going on, but also the tendency for, for rumour to come roaring through at any stage. Um, and so that, human beings have not changed in no, thousands of years. No. It's extremely difficult to control that. Um, and so my fear would be, yes, you will go back to that sort of position. One way... Kate, that Australia deals with the problem of declining turnout is to ban it. They have uh, compulsory voting. It's not really compulsory voting. It's compulsory turning up at the polls. Yes. Uh, um, And uh, people still to this day get fined for not voting. Mm. Uh, And I know that there are a range of societies that have considered it, but very few have implemented. But Australia stuck with it for a long time. Mm. And it's been... It's interesting how little protest there is about it. I mean, and, and it's at all levels. If you don't turn up for your local council election, you Gosh. get a fine notice. I spent my whole university life getting fined and then <laughs> having to appeal those fines because I was at university while some vote had taken place in my hometown that I hadn't been aware of. Um, so, I, you know, it does, take an, it does take quite a bureaucracy to manage it, but the turnout is always you know, 98%. Mm. 
Is there, looking back at the Athenians, there there was an expectation that you would be involved in this, right? It wasn't, the, it's that same idea that there was an expectation that if you were a male over 18 and a landowner, you would be involved in this. There was a, an expectation. You don't even need to be a landowner. If you're a male over the age of 18, the expectation is that you will be interested in these things, but the expectation also is that only a percentage, a relatively small percentage as far as we can tell, will actually turn up on the day. If something got to be enormously important, we'd have to find somewhere else to hold the meeting. You just can't hold it uh, in the football-sized area that uh, is actually the main meeting area. Um, So the view, we have that ideal and the reality. Mm. Uh, And for most people, I suppose that's convenient. We don't want to actually be forced to turn up day every month. Were there sanctions? Were there uh, against people who didn't turn up, didn't come to uh, meetings? No, but they did um, start rewarding you for turning up, (laughs) i.e., here's your $10 voucher. Here's your your bauble. (laughs) Um, Did they have uh, political parties? Did they have, uh, they probably wouldn't have been called that, but but factions? Did, did, Did people coalesce around ideas? People certainly coalesced um, around individuals that would have certain ideas. Uh, Periclean Athens uh, is something that one thinks of with the Acropolis, and that's associated with Pericles, who was an extremely popular and obviously extremely effective politician. And indeed, there was never an Athenian politician as effective as him. Um, Other people, clearly you could be supporting. Some people who didn't like democracy didn't, in effect, have parties, but they tended to keep that secret (laughs) until there was a coup. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Because where did our parties come from, Nigel? Well, uh, originally, um, in the the question you asked Art, I mean, that described basically what parliaments uh, in the British Empire were like in the 19th century. They generally coalesced around individuals, and whether it was the New South Wales Parliament or the New Zealand Parliament uh, or the British Parliament. And then gradually they realised that well, one way to get some of the uncertainty out of the way is to kind of make these groupings a bit more formal. Um, but, you know, as late as the period in New Zealand between World War I and World War II, the party situation in New Zealand was remarkably fluid. Mm. Um, uh, I was uh, just reading recently about Gordon Coates, a uh, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, and he basically started off as an independent liberal and then moved to become, of course, eventually a reform Prime Minister uh, and then uh, had a very uh, fraught relationship with the National Party once it was formed and was honoured by the Labour Party more than the National Party when he died. And you know, So that idea was still there in, in, in you know, as I say, the interwar period. Mm. Um, I have to say that one thing that parties do help us uh, considerably with is having effective government because when you look at the United States where the party system is remarkably fluid, uh, the president uh, may not have control of the House of Representatives or the Senate and then the difficulty of getting things done and you just compare it with Australia or New Zealand or Britain and, you know, that... John Key and now Bill English know know that by and large most of their programmes will get through because they have the support of just over half the people in Parliament in the case of National uh, 59 seats and a few others uh, in in, uh, confidence and supply agreements and it works. I mean it gives us very stable government Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for uh, uh, for that. And of course that goes back to something I mentioned right at the beginning the Athenians had to grapple with, well, are we going to put all the men on Lesbos to death or not? And who decides it? A majority. And so built into lots of systems of uh, democracy is the idea that actually the majority 
will be the uh, opinion that is carried. And I think that's a very important part. So why don't we still vote by majority? Why don't we vote? Uh, the Brexit referendum is a great example that, that they put this massive constitutional reform to a, to a referendum of the people. Do, why don't we put things other than things like marriage equality to... Why don't we have more regular referendums? Let's take that. Well, again, I think that goes back to uh, Edmund Burke and the idea that what uh, the representatives owe us is their judgment and then we will judge them come an election. Uh, and I do think that uh, the uh, democracy that still uses frequent referendums is Switzerland. And if you think the turnout in New Zealand is low, if you think the turnout in New Zealand is dispiriting, you should see Switzerland, <laughs> you know, where they're lucky to get 40% turnout. I mean, Switzerland actually sometimes makes the United States turnout look good. Mm. Um, and it's just the overuse and people being dragged to the polls over and over. Well, dragged. You know, uh, they, you know, they're not being dragged because they don't go. And so I think that in some ways... And we talk about voter fatigue. We actually have general elections every three years. A large number of countries in Europe have them every four Four years. The United States, it's a model with the presidency every four years. Uh, you know, Britain, of course, has five years for its parliament. So we actually have quite frequent elections. Mm. And, and we've been having them for a very long time. We are a relatively old democracy in New Zealand. Well, there are some political scientists, Arendt Leipart, um, a Dutchman who taught for many years at the University of California, San Diego, has described New Zealand as the world's oldest democracy. And I can almost imagine Art sitting up in protest. But, <laughs> I was going to <laughs> thought that might happen. <laughs> but the reason Continuous? For, <laughs> well, no, the reason for it is that um, in... Uh, 1867, of course, Maori males got the vote and basically from 1867 till 1893, all men had the vote in New Zealand. And then in 1893, when you had female suffrage passed by Parliament, uh, we then had universal adult suffrage. Uh, and it was the first country in the world, men and women, black and white, indigenous and settlers, all having the vote. Uh, and so for that reason, New Zealand's been called the world's oldest democracy. Of course, it's a matter of degree, and we should mention that for a very long time after that, New Zealand women could not stand for Parliament. They weren't allowed to be members of Parliament. So it took it's democracy 30, 40 in years for us to get that woman Yes, yeah. another 30 years, yeah. yes. Kate, that brings us to you and, and, mm. and women's suffrage. I mean, we talk about representation. For a very long time, women didn't have representation in mm. government. And, and, you know, I, I'm always really struck, you know, when Art was saying, you know, Athenians valued... The, the participation of men over 18 because they were soldiers mm. or potential soldiers. And that, you know, that comes right through the French Revolution, the every soldier a citizen, every citizen a soldier. So the equation of military service um, with the rights and the obligations of citizenship is very old. Uh, and, you know, for a whole bunch of you know, kind of what we see as complex and slightly tortured reasons you know, women took a long time to be able to break through or to break that connection between the able-bodied adult male body and the right to vote mm. and to be a citizen and to participate. And that, you know, that took some doing. It really did. And it, it, it took a, a very long fight and it took convincing both men and women. There were lots of women who didn't agree with the suffragists that women should have to vote. Yeah, it? that's right. And, and, I mean, it's like any major, um, you know, major change to society is that it was highly contentious. Um, you know, we also have to say that there were probably large proportions of the population who didn't care either way because it wasn't going to change their lives one bit. Or if um, they did, they cared about the temperance part of it, not the, the right, not drinking right, part of it, that's and right. not the voting so, part of it. So you end up with, with competing um, motives for wanting to secure the vote is mm. is one thing. Um, and competing voting, competing motives, you know, on the part of men as well as women. And, um, you know, I love John Stuart Mill asking the British Parliament, well, if women are naturally inferior, why won't we give them the vote? Because they won't cast it anyway. And so he was kind of using those arguments mm. against Conservatives, mm. which, you know, I always loved the way that he used to prod and poke people and then go home to dinner with Harriet Taylor, who, you know, used to say, well, what happened today? 
What are we? Where are we up to? And New Zealand's prime minister at the time of the suffrage fight here, whose name I should know, and it has escaped me. Oh, is it, there was a balance and then Seddon. Seddon, mm, yes. Who was who was anti women's suffrage, mm, but then mm. when but then when it passed, um, championed it and celebrated it, and and I know a lot of the suffragists thought he was a bit of a hypocrite about it. And and that story is over and over again. I mean, and and in a way, that's the nature of politicians. They will go the way the wind is blowing. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, I think that we do we underestimate too, and especially because of the New Zealand experience, which which does look and seem to be quite peaceful, quite straightforward. Um, you know, I think I think it's easy for us to underestimate the real battles that women all over the world went through to win the vote. Mm. It, they were violent. There were women killed. There were women imprisoned. Um, hunger strikes. And, oh, hunger yeah. strikes, being dragged out of peaceful protests and raped in alleys. I mean, the the those kinds of stories are not really part of the liberal progressive story that, you know, the idea of women's suffrage tends to conjure up. Um, and I think, too, that, um, you know, we, we, it's easy, I think, to feel slightly superior in New Zealand because of what Nigel was saying about, you know, being the first national government in the world to grant um, voting rights and citizenship to Indigenous people as well as settlers. Um, but, you know, the, it, one of the things that political scientists in a way haven't really been able to explain is why was New Zealand so exceptional? Because it really was. Mm. Um, we did also have the first woman mayor in the world, I learned this year. I th- yes, yeah. yep, yep. And so you end up, um, you do end up, Kind of the more you learn about women's suffrage internationally, the more you think, how and why did this happen? Because it is really quite extraordinary. Mm. Is it something to do with that stable government, Nigel? Do you think? Is it? I think going back to an earlier uh, theme in our discussion, I think it actually has quite a lot to do with size. New Zealand was a very small society in mm. those days, and it's actually easier in some ways to change small societies, uh, and small societies can change more quickly. And if you consider some of the big changes that have uh, occurred in New Zealand, the change, for example, in attitudes towards sporting contact with South Africa, and that was another real battle in which people were beaten up and hit about the head by both police and people who opposed their ideas, And then very quickly you had the change in the 1980s and most recently the change in opinion on same-sex marriage. And so we've now had the new Prime Minister announce that, well, if the vote were to be taken again, which it won't be, he would have changed his mind and would have voted for same-sex marriage. It's not so long ago that Helen Clark opposed same-sex marriage and supported civil unions because the country wasn't ready for same-sex marriage. And this goes back to your point right at the very beginning about the ability to, to change the mind, the ability to go back and do a vote again. Though um, one point I would uh, say is it's often been considered that because democracy gives you something, gives you access to the assets of the state, it can also be exclusionary Mm -hmm. that people don't want to see immigrants come in and take part of that cake. Mm. Uh, And Athenian society was extremely exclusionary, even by um, ancient standards. You had to have a male citizen father and a, a female citizen mother. And that was so, in effect, there was virtually no other way mm. to join Athenian society. It was a closed shop. Um, and democracy prided itself on that. Mm. I think that. That one very important aspect that we haven't really discussed is that one of the dangers of majority government is, of course, the tyranny of the majority. And that's why a fundamental view of democracy should also be to safeguard the rights of minorities within those polities. Um, and uh, that is a very uh, important juggling act. Um, and it's interesting that in New Zealand, uh, the... Uh, when uh, Geoffrey Palmer was Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Justice, uh, his own party refused to go along with entrenching and making the Bill of Rights a kind of a constitutional rights uh, that couldn't be overturned. I mean, the Bill of Rights, 
uh, as it stands in New Zealand, is on a par with the Dog Catchers Act. It could be <laughs> changed by a simple plurality tomorrow. Um, and I think that the important idea and the United States, of course, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution inserted their Bill of Rights into the Constitution saying that this is a fundamental protection for minorities within a system that actually has majority rule. There is also, I guess, this idea... One of the things I see a lot of in, in commentary uh, on the internet uh, about this is that uh, the government doesn't do what I want it to do, and and it, I guess coming back again to, to Edmund Burke, but that that is part of the majority rule, isn't it? That that the government was sent there by fifty percent of the people, and it has to represent the fifty percent of the people, not just you, your one person. I, I think that. Uh in that case, where somebody feels that they're not, uh, uh, their views aren't being listened to, I mean, I think that that's where democracy comes to its essence. Can that person speak out against what is happening uh, without fear? Can that person organise, uh, can bring other people together, incorporate them and, and try and get the uh, policy direction changed? Uh, if they can't do that, then I don't think it meets the test of being a democracy. But if they can do that, then and that's the kind of the give and take of democracy. I mean, I mean, it's always going to be the case that you have a group of people, there will be people with different opinions. And the way to accommodate them is give everybody's voice a chance to be heard uh, and, th- and also a chance to change the system. Uh, and th- those are both I think, fundamental to an understanding of democracy. And that is how our parliament works. That, that, that's how parliament is set up. It does. Yeah. And, 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 of course, uh, we do occasionally go to referendums. Of course, we have uh, citizens-initiated referendums, <laughs> which uh, the National Party adopted in a fit of populism in the early 1990s. And, of course, not one has had any effect. I mean, if we, we would uh, have a much smaller parliament. We would have uh, regular beatings. Uh, uh, you know, it's just uh, those have been ignored. And I think that shows the dif- uh, the difficulty of kind of pandering to popular taste. I think the idea of letting things be debated, thrashed out in Parliament, you don't like what's happened, you uh, throw the parliamentarians out and uh, try and uh, come up with a better result. But those seeds do... Aren't you going to say those seeds... Uh, I was thinking they're a lot happier than the people in Athens who are actually open to court procedure if it's believed that they have misled the Assembly or not carried out their jobs properly. Um, that, that was a very robust system um, and people had to be very smart to actually survive long in it. <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the, do we still have... Is there still the trust in the majority, in the population to make decisions in the way that, the way that the Athenians had? I would... Th- think in this country, although we curse the politicians, we probably curse the the general population as much. Um, It, however, becomes uh, much more complicated when you you look at what's happened in the the US. But maybe Nigel can explain that to us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I would agree that um, in, in New Zealand, I think there is a much greater satisfaction with our lot. Um, and I think that the election of uh, President Trump uh, is down to the fact that the large numbers of people felt uh, really left behind. Um, uh, and uh, where did Trump win his uh, victories? He won them in what are called the Rust Belt states. Uh, now, that's a little bit of a misnomer because some of the Rust Belt states are actually doing considerably better than some of the other states and actually have a uh, above average performance economically. But um, uh, the Michigans, Ohio's, Pennsylvania even, which I mean, Pennsylvania is a Rust Belt. Uh, but... Um, I was actually fortunate enough to be in the United States for the uh, 2016 presidential election and what was hugely and easily noticeable, and I travelled around, I visited 19 states uh, while I was there, and it was immediately obvious that the supporters of Donald Trump were far, far more enthusiastic about their candidate than the supporters of Hillary Clinton were. And I think that was one of the Democrats' difficulties, added to which the Democrats were in effect going for a third term. And uh, that's always been difficult. Exactly. Um, That's particularly difficult in New Zealand. 
yes. looking into an election in 2017. Or a, or a, <laughs> a fourth term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, having said that, though, that also raises the question, I mean, there is obviously there was that what, what people are now calling economic uncertainty. There's also um, a lot of social uncertainty with those people and certainly the Trump supporters. Mm. And it comes back to that idea of kind of safeguarding minorities, that there's going to be a tension there, I think, in his government between how you... Uh, how you uh, provide for the minority while also protecting women and other minorities. Mm-hmm. I, I think the racism that became mm. immediately apparent after the election and a little bit like attitudes towards immigrants in Britain the day after the Brexit mm. uh, referendum. You know, the day after Brexit referendum, uh, it was being reported that people of Polish origin working in Britain were asked why they were still there. Mm. Um, you know, I, mean, I think that uh, it is uh, really important to handle those situations well I'm not entirely certain that that will be the case in the United States. <laughs> but but it appears to have tailed off in, in, in the UK post-Brexit. Well, there's certainly not as much media reporting about those kinds of incidents now. Maybe it hasn't tailed off. No, but I, I, I'm intrigued by the, the, uh, the bitterness and anger of the Conservative government over the court case, whether in fact it is a parliament that has a say. And in that wonderful decision made by the uh, British judiciary uh, that... You know, cited uh, Fitzgerald versus Muldoon, whereas the, uh, the idea that you know, even if you're the government, you don't have the ability to willy-nilly overturn an act of parliament. Parliament has to overturn that act of parliament. And I think that uh, the British legal system uh, has initially, and we'll find out the results uh, probably in January, uh, but it, it, it does seem to me that uh, they've stood up for a very important principle, mm. and uh, a- that the executive can't change the law, only Parliament can change the law. And that, I mean, that brings us back to what democracy actually is. If Parliament is our representative, they, it should be Parliament that changes these things. I used to have my students read, and it's wonderful language, Fitzgerald versus Muldoon, the judgment, which goes back to the 1688 Bill of Rights in Britain to kind of claim the legal precedence. And it, it's a wonderful piece of you know, judicial but also political writing. You, your students must love you. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I am concerned about is if one goes back to Athens, you needed to have the expertise and ability to actually persuade people. Uh, and that was not only important for politics, but in effect you get the development of Western intellectual thought because people need to obtain these skills. Um, And I don't know how many people have gone through Nigel's or Kate's classes in preparation for a career in politics, but presumably at least some have thought that that would be a useful thing. Whereas nowadays there is obviously quite a strong view that expertise is not what we want. And that is something which I find very strange. And obviously, as I'm trying to sell expertise to my <laughs> students, worry. I, I mean, one of the things that, that kind of brings back to that question about referendums and majority rule is I don't know enough about most things that Parliament votes on to be able to make a decision about it. So, I mean, for the Athenians, were, were they expected to have that expertise, you know, if they were voting on whether or not... Um, uh, they should execute the people. Were they expected to understand the context and have the history and all of that stuff? They were expected, I think, in the same way that a, a, a jury trial works, that they would be presented with the evidence and they would have the expertise to actually decide one way or another. So individually, no, but as a group, the belief was that, in fact they would be able to make the correct decision. Now, of course, from time to time, they didn't make the correct decision, which was embarrassing. Um, And so there is a whole range of thought against democracy based on that, but nevertheless the view that most people, when faced with a generic problem, will en masse be able to come to the best decision if given the information is what our democratic system, even the parliamentary system, is based on, I think. 
I have a very strong uh, belief, and based on evidence, I hope, that actually people are pretty good judges of what's in their own best interest. And uh, uh, a lot of people vote in what's their own best interest. Uh, uh, people may say, I'm voting altruistically. I'm voting because such and such is important. It doesn't affect me. You know, uh, a, uh, more social welfare. But, of course, in some ways it does affect them. If society is happier, if society is less likely to meet armed robbers or beggars on the street, you know, then, uh, being altruistic actually can be a really good self-interest. But um, I often like to point out that in the 1993 referendum we had on whether to change our voting system, Māori, who are, statistically speaking, amongst the least educated part of the population, the most disadvantaged part of the population, and the part of the population most likely to be in prison, Māori voted two to one in favour of MMP because Māori realised that MMP was going to be far better for Māori representation. The number of seats in uh, a parliament held by Māori was going to go up. The, the Māori electorates could go up or down depending on the numbers and they ensured that the numbers initially went up and so we went up from four to five to six to seven and we have in parliament now about the share of Māori that there are in the population. And I think that's a wonderful lesson, you know, that you know, people know what's in their interest and give them an opportunity to exercise a vote that's in their interest, they will. And yet, Kate, we still don't have uh, equal representation don't have of women in women. Parliament. No, no. No, it's a very... Um, it, and it, it is... Um, we get a little bit caught in the discourse of meritocracy that, um, well, you know, if, if women are good enough they'll get there. And we give everybody equality of opportunity. Um, and I think that it, again, it's an interesting kind of question when we start to talk about, well, okay, opportunity is one thing. What are the fences between here and the outcome? And, you know, it's a difficult question uh, in New Zealand. And I do think that, and, and I think actually it's especially difficult in New Zealand because we feel that we have a long history of equal rights for women. Um, I've, you know, I've just come out of um, a couple of lectures in another course I'm doing on um, the fights for equal pay from the 1880s. And, you know, that century, more, 150 years of fighting for equal pay. <laughs> Again, another really interesting, um, you know, another interesting way in which the language of the law and the language of of uh, parliament and the language of democracy actually hides quite a lot of disadvantage. It's a whole extra podcast. It's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sum up with, I want to go back to that quote from Winston Churchill that, that it's, uh, he said, well, he said someone else said, I, I'm led to believe that the best uh, democracy is the best form of government except those all those other forms that have been tried. One of the themes that have come through in all of these recordings that, of these discussions that we've been having is uh, that revolutions don't just start and stop. You can't put a start date and end date on it. And I think that's one that is so especially true with democracy that we're talking about from Athens right to now that democracy is still rather much an experiment that is continuing. Who wants to take that? Well, and I think the other thing is that that democracy doesn't look the same everywhere it's practised. Mm. I mean, that's, that is, if you take that long span from Athens forward, you know, that, that is the lesson that you get, that actually democracy is a big basket with lots of things in it and it depends what shiny one you want to pick out. And it comes back to, I do remember, a, you know, eminent political scientist telling me once that, all voting systems work. It just depends what you want to prioritise. And so, again, it's that thing of, OK, well, what is it that this democracy wants to prioritise? And, and, you know, why New Zealand in 1893? You know, equally, why Wyoming in the 1860s? Why Utah in the 1860s? Why are they giving white women the vote? Why did South Australia give all Aboriginal people and all white women the vote in 1894? You know, it's a, why those places? Well, they were picking a different system. And so I think even though we talk about democracy, we're really needing to talk about democracies and which one you want to pick. And, yeah, that lovely pick and mix idea, I think, is part of why it's a complicated question. I 
think it's the case that um, really in Athens is almost unique in the ancient world. There were other democracies, but no, none as important. And it was regarded as a extremely radical, but probably bad system. And really, that probably was the case uh, of thought through to maybe the 19th century. The American Constitution is deliberately non-democratic. Mm. Mm. Uh, they wanted a republic, not a democracy. Yes. So that's the Roman model, which mm. is not democratic, which is the model which was generally followed. And they very much feared in um, 1787 when they were writing the Constitution, they very much feared mob rule. Mm. Um, and that's why Donald Trump was elected, uh, even though he had about two million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton for the presidency, because they designed the Electoral College. Uh, and democracy is a very broad church. I mean, just as there are electoral systems like Britain's uh, with first past the post that we, uh, of course, used to have, like Australia's with preferential voting, uh, but still single-member districts and majoritarian outcomes. Uh, if you said to a Scandinavian or a Dutch citizen that that was democracy, they'd look at you and kind of go, like, what? That's democratic? Um, and I think that uh, Kate was right. You know, there, are, there are all sorts of different varieties of democracy, and it isn't something that has stopped. It's, it's an evolving, changing discussion about what is democratic, what's not uh, uh, democratic, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think that's inevitably going to continue into the future. Well, it has to change because society's views about what is acceptable. So, you know, looking forward to your next podcast about origin of species. I mean, one of one of the things we haven't touched on at all is that in the middle of the 19th century, there were very different ideas of race. Mm -hmm. So, well, the idea of race itself was born and how did that affect the way in which citizenry or participation or educational um, possibilities were reshaped into the late 19th century? So, I, yeah, I think that it, it's inevitable that as social ideas and intellectual uh, movement occurs, then then the, the system of governing must change. And to bring it full circle, we have to keep talking about it. Yes, and um, remember that it's not even clear that it's a majority system in the world at the moment. Yep. Mm. <laughs> and on that delightful note... <laughs> uh, uh, my thanks to Professor Art Pomore, Emeritus Professor Nigel Roberts and Associate Professor Kate Hunter. Great Ideas was made in association with Victoria University of Wellington. It was engineered by Phil Benge with production assistance from Adam McCauley and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes and more of RNZ's podcasts at rnz.co.nz. 